Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring the latest news, guidance, and updates from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Sabota Kindle, VP of Program Development with ACFCS, and in recent years, it seems like just about everyone's become interested in cryptocurrencies, from major players like Facebook and the Chinese government to, well, less major players like Dennis Rodman. That expanded public profile and growing usage of crypto has also drawn interest from the darker side, including cyber criminals tied to nation states. The most notorious among these criminal groups are linked to the government of North Korea, which has turned to crypto crime in an effort to evade global sanctions and raise funds. One outfit in particular, called the Lazarus Group, have become specialists in targeting cryptocurrency exchanges with considerable success. Last August, a UN panel estimated the country was responsible for over $500 in funds stolen from exchanges, a lot of that attributed to the Lazarus Group. These looted funds are often moved through other exchanges and into the traditional financial sector. This is creating risks for both crypto firms and banks, and it's drawing attention from law enforcement. Earlier this month, the U.S. government took action against two Chinese nationals for their role in helping the Lazarus Group launder funds stolen in exchange hacks. The Department of Justice listed 145 crypto accounts and addresses that were used to launder the funds, and 20 of those were included in a a sanctions designation. In this edition, we're joined by Jonathan Levin, the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Chainalysis, a leading blockchain intelligence and investigations firm. We're going to take an in-depth look at how Lazarus launders stolen money and how investigators, exchanges, and financial institutions can fight back, including by leveraging blockchain forensic tools like those provided by Chainalysis. Jonathan, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for thanks for the interview. Yeah, and before we get into the uh, the topic on hand, which is the Lazarus Group, uh, their money laundering operation, and and how this touches both the crypto and legacy financial sector, uh, do you mind just giving a little bit of background about yourself uh, and your organization, Chainalysis? I know you're uh, a blockchain forensics firm, but uh, you can obviously speak to it much better than me. Sure. So. I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the co-founders of Chainalysis. Currently, I serve the company as our chief strategy officer. Essentially, my job is to take care of the most important clients that we have in the different verticals that we serve. And so we are a anti-money laundering uh, software provider for cryptocurrency businesses, financial institutions, and we provide investigation software to, to law enforcement and regulators. And really, my role is to look at areas like this, what we're talking about, and see what are the types of initiatives that we need to take as a business to make the ecosystem as a whole more successful or specific things that we should be doing to help uh, our customers combat the type of abuse of cryptocurrencies like DPRK. Great. Appreciate that intro. And and on that note, you know, we are focusing here on the DPRK, North Korea, as, as it's often referred to, uh, and their involvement in in the world of crypto crime. Uh, and for those that might not be familiar with it, you know, we are focused on a specific case, but the regime has been linked to cryptocurrency theft, crypto jacking, various uh, forms of crypto crime for a while now. So do you mind just giving us some background on what North Korea has been up to in this space uh, and their recent activity? 
Yeah, sure. So I think what's important to, to stress here is that the North Korean regime has been linked to you know, cryptocurrency-enabled cybercrime, but actually their involvement sort of dates back to before cryptocurrencies were as prevalent in the cybercrime arena. And that that gives you a sense that they have groups that are very familiar with, you know, the typical cybercrime activities of, a, of any other APT. And that has been the case for, for many years. And so they've really adapted strategies to, you know, best exploit vulnerabilities in, in cryptocurrencies. And that has followed on from them building capacity over time in their cyber criminal activity, you know, particularly targeted at things like financial institutions. So, you know, they've been behind a lot of um, larger you know, espionage and ransomware attacks. And uh, now looking at, at cryptocurrencies, they've really started to focus on other vulnerabilities in some of the businesses that operate in the cryptocurrency realm that they can, you know, hack into and, and seize money. And so you know, we estimate that one of their cybercrime organizations, Lazarus, has been behind about $1.5 billion in cryptocurrency exchange hacks. And mm. you know, th that then gets used and funneled through and laundered into funding you know, North Korean uh, programs, and that could be their, their nuclear programs or, or other types of operations that, that North Korea is doing. Uh, and therefore, you know, what we've seen among our customer base, which is comprised of you know, cryptocurrency businesses themselves who are, who are worried about the sort of threat of being hacked, but also you know, their compliance obligation. Um, and it's, it's really been important for the U.S. government and governments around the world with, um, with regulating financial institutions to also pay attention to this, uh, to this threat. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the U.S. government angle. This is, as we'll get to in, in a little bit, this is also a sanctions issue, right? This isn't just a, uh, a cyber threat issue, especially because of the involvement in, in North Korea, of North Korea, uh, one of the countries subject to the heaviest U.S. sanctions. There's also some hooks to, uh, to sanctions concerns as well. You mentioned the uh, term APT or, or advanced persistent threat, just in case anyone hasn't run into them. And uh, North Korea isn't the only advanced per persistent threat in this phase, in this space, particularly even connected to crypto. We've seen we've seen other threat actors. Is that correct? You know, other nation states actually are involved outside of just North Korea. Yeah, I think that's I think that's correct, and and there's definitely. Essentially, all of the APTs that people track, so, you know, think about there are Iranian APTs, Russian APTs, and what what has evolved over the last number of years is that cryptocurrency has become part of a toolkit for their activity, and either it is about raising funds through that type of activity directly in cryptocurrencies, so hacking into exchanges, or... It is about using cryptocurrencies as the payment instrument to receive funds through extortion. But the other sort of flip side of this is also understanding that you know, almost all cybercrime actors in some form 
are potentially paying for capabilities with cryptocurrency. And so whether it's buying the uh, server infrastructure or if it is looking at the ransomware as a service or uh, buying anonymity services, all of that can be purchased and those capabilities can be purchased with cryptocurrencies. And it's something that uh, our customers are paying more and more attention to. Mm. So crypto is, is the, the coin of the realm, so to speak, for, uh, for cyber criminals. Um, so speaking of cyber criminals, the focus, uh, as mentioned, of this, this conversation is around the Lazarus Group and particularly around uh, the U.S. Treasury's designation of, of, of two Chinese nationals who were helping to launder funds for the Lazarus Group. So uh, we're going to get into you know how that worked, why this was happening, but what is the Lazarus Group? Uh, what is this organization, and, and what are they actually doing to target crypto exchanges? Yeah, so so the Lazarus Group is a cybercrime group, essentially a state-sponsored cybercrime group created by north korea that that operates uh and has been in operation since as early as 2007 and typically this is going to be focused on financially motivated targets and they've been looking at institutions like governments military financial institutions uh, media and entertainment and and other types of critical critical infrastructure. And tactically, we've seen them author malware, distribute malware, um, hack into different organizations using social engineering and conducting a range of activity from cyber espionage to data thefts and um, even sort of wiping uh, wiping out bits of data using destructive malware operations. So they, they've been in operation for you know, a good number of years and have evolved their techniques. And the, they are sometimes attributed to some of the larger cybercrime incidents that, that we've seen. Specifically, um, we saw them attributed to the uh, WannaCry ransomware attack, where that was attributed uh, by the U.S. to North Korea in, in December 2017. WannaCry affected you know, 150 countries around the world, and you know, that happened in the summer of 2017. And the types of services that were really badly affected included the U.K.'s National Health Service. But really, you know, that incident you know, shut down you know, hundreds of thousands of computers around the world, caused a great deal of havoc, and only actually raised about $150,000 in ransomware payments. So that was some of these incidents that you see are not at the sort of dollar values of, of stealing cryptocurrency, but some, some, of them are, some of them are incredibly disruptive to our day-to-day lives. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's kind of interesting because this is a uh, threat that I think is, we're focusing on crypto here, but it's obviously far beyond crypto, right? I think in talking to some of our members who are from financial institutions, um, potentially even law enforcement or government, they tend to, uh, and this attitude is not, you know, unique to the financial institution space, but there's sort of a siloed, a siloed attitude where it's, you know, crypto's over here and we're over here, um, whether it's crypto firms or, or other businesses in the space. So, uh, but, you know, what you're describing is much more of a continuum, right? These are threat actors that are involved in crypto theft, but they're also targeting traditional financial institutions. They're using the funds generated from crypto theft to fund other cybercrime operations. 
that type of thing. So there's not this sort of separation into, you know, we just target crypto or, you know, we don't move funds between crypto and financial institutions. There's no silos uh, on the criminal side, so to speak, or, or at least less of them, it sounds like. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so. And, and what we've seen in, in some of the most recent designations is specifically financial institutions named in conjunction with recent designations in with the Lazarus Group. So just last month, you know, OFAC imposed, imposed sanctions on, on two Chinese nationals involved with the laundering of about $100 million associated with North Korean exchange hacks that, that they had performed. And in those types of announcements, you'll have both the identification of you know, the cryptocurrency addresses that were involved and the the eventual banks that those funds were laundered through. And you know, through the use of chain analysis, you know, it's possible to go from sometimes these cryptocurrency addresses to, you know, the actual exit points and off ramps into the, the the regular financial institutions. And it's at that point that you can actually have like a full picture of the flow of funds going from uh, you know, a hacked exchange all the way to uh, a financial institution bank account. And I think that's sort of the biggest question that, you know, a lot of a lot of our audience often has when they when they look at something like a hack of a crypto exchange. How does a stolen crypto end up in the financial sector? And particularly, you know, how is this this uh, converted into into fiat currency? I mean, presumably, North Korea doesn't necessarily have the infrastructure, or the ability to just uh, steal the crypto and then utilize it directly. Maybe they are with some of it, but it sounds like it's much more, you know, it's flowing from flowing from exchange hacks, you know, through malware or other techniques into financial institutions potentially around the world. So can you kind of describe the process of, of how this money is moving and how it's ended up ending up in in fiat currency yeah so this is um this is also an evolving sphere because as you can imagine the types of laundering techniques that are employed by Lazarus change over time and so it's not necessarily that it's always the same set of you know the same typology to be watching for um, if you're a compliance professional but but definitely we can speak in, in sort of broad forms around you know how these how these funds are laundered. And so you know, what Chainalysis really does as a base level of understanding is we take you know, all the publicly available cryptocurrency transactions and we, we can show you, which services are really responsible for those transactions. And so the types of services that, that we can identify that are responsible for cryptocurrency transactions are, are largely exchanges. And so most of this activity is normal activity for cryptocurrencies. So you have money moving between the different exchanges. What we also can identify, though, is that when, when funds are stolen from an exchange, We'll label that inside our software and an analyst, a compliance analyst, will be able to see that you know, an exchange sent to an entity which we call stolen funds, which, which is sort of, you know, the theft. And then from there, we're going to see the, um, the movement of those funds through a variety of different methods. And this is where sort of the layering comes in where you will have different techniques to try and obfuscate the origin of funds before they're placed into a financial institution. And so, you know, what Chainalysis is responsible for is being able to show what are the services that um, Lazarus is using 
from the point that the funds are stolen to the exit points where that money is presumably being moved into you know, the traditional banking sector. So what we have looked at in really great detail is you know, how much of the money that Lazarus has actually stolen has been moved through that type of typology through potentially intermediary services into the financial system. And we found that you know, from, from last year, if you take last 2019, half of the funds that were stolen are still just resting in the, in, in the cryptocurrency wallets themselves held presumably by Lazarus. And so that's really, that's the end of the, the, that fund flow. But the other half has sort of been moved through this, this set of you know, activity to to be able to cash out, and so you know, what we what we see is that you know there is some use of of sophisticated techniques, but in many cases we are actually able to identify the the exit points um, for that. One thing that that I'll say is that you know given that half of the money that we've seen that was stolen from 2019 has already worked its way through into financial institutions, that's definitely something for people to pay attention to and do investigations of. But the other thing that it sort of brings to me is that half of the money is still sitting there and therefore you know, there's something really important for the industry and law enforcement uh, and everyone to rally around in terms of you know, preventing those funds from actually being cashed out eventually. And that's about understanding this typology a lot better, whether you're a financial institution or a cryptocurrency business. And I think it's worth noting, you know, we are, we are focusing on the criminal uh, use of crypto right now, or at least uh, the involvement of, of, of criminal organizations or, or rogue states in the crypto space. But, you know, Chainalysis in particular has put out some really good research about legitimate versus illegitimate use of crypto. Um, and at least based on what I've seen, if I'm re- recalling correctly, the figures on, on illegitimate use for, were quite small, right? Uh, you know, we're talking about less than 1%, I believe, if I, if I remember that report correctly, of, uh, of transactions in crypto were tied to, you know, some form of uh, illicit actor or suspicious address. So, uh, you know, is, 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 that, is that accurate? Is that fair to say that, you know, despite the fact that there are these threats out there, there is this use of, of quote unquote, bad crypto. There is quite a lot of good crypto, too, that institutions and, you know, others looking at this space need to be aware of. Yeah. So I think that what, what we're highlighting in this presentation, you know, this is definitely, you know, a fringe of the industry which is not the mainstream use. So if you Mm -hmm. are a financial institution that's looking at this space and you are seeing a lot of your retail customers moving funds from their traditional bank accounts to cryptocurrency exchanges or from cryptocurrency exchanges to those bank accounts, there are tons of different use cases. We're living in unprecedented times where the, the economic crisis that we're in is definitely prompting people to look at you know, alternative assets to store wealth in, um, looking at hedges against inflation, looking at ways to have independent value stores from you know, potentially governments in, in emerging markets and around the world. You know, there, there are plenty of reasons why retail customers and institutional customers are getting involved in the crypto space. Um, you know, that is very much independent of the type of typology that we should be looking for when we're actually trying to 
really find the the uh, needle in the haystack and finding there are actors like Lazarus hiding in the you know, the rest of the cryptocurrency activity. Right, right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, to that point, you, you alluded to this before and you mentioned a little bit about it, but just to expand on it, you know, uh, Lazarus and, and others in the space are certainly getting better at you know, hiding as, uh, get better at, uh, at detecting them using your tools. Right. So, uh, what are some tactics being used by both advanced persistent threats and just people involved in, in, in money laundering and the crypto space in general to conceal source of funds? Uh, and then as kind of an add on on to that, you know, how are you still peeling back those layers and still getting at the, uh, the attribution or, you know, the tracing these funds back to these wallets? Yeah. So I think that there's a number of techniques that, that have existed and, you know, some sometimes we see a, a very large number of transactions and splitting up of larger amounts into much smaller chunks. Um, and you know, that was maybe a, a very infant technique. And now we see sort of a little bit more use of services like mixing services. And so uh, these are you know, specifically designed to obfuscate the flow of funds. You, know, you can think about a mixer as a pooling cryptocurrency from various different users together and then sending that back out to the people that put money into that pool in a way that you know, obfuscates you know, which money came into the pool and which money goes out. And really what we've seen is that there is an increase of use for these types of services. And particularly, there's a protocol in Bitcoin uh, called CoinJoin, which is a mixing protocol if you will, which defines how the mix happens. And that's that's something that we've seen Lazarus increasingly use. They've used things like the Wasabi wallet, which is a, a particular implementation of this uh, of this protocol. And what, what is important for chain analysis in this arena is that we can identify what, it, what are those strategies being employed. And so from a compliance standpoint, What's important to know is what are the services that are associated with North Korea? What are the amounts that are being talked about in terms of the frequency of these payments and cash outs and the actual amount that are involved in these types of transactions? So really having a knowledge of the details of the exchange hacks themselves definitely help the um, compliance teams understand what the what the typology would look like if the money sort of gets moved towards those exchanges and so we're not saying that there's like all mixing services should be treated as suspicious but we do think that for the largest quantities that are being sent from these mixing services due to sort of the size of some of these exchange hacks or you know a high velocity of payment, that should be scrutinized at the exchange level to to see, does this match a pattern? Does this match maybe other indicators that the exchange is looking at and you know, actually free some of that, some of those funds? I've seen exchanges like Paxos in New York adapt this and, and sort of publish that, that this is the type of approach that they're taking. And uh, I think it's good that exchanges are thinking about this typology. 
Yeah, no, it's good to see the the innovation uh, in the space. I mean, I think you know one of the advantages of the the crypto space. It's probably something you're kind of on the front lines of. Is how you know they're more nimble, I guess you could say, than maybe the traditional financial sector, being that it is evolving, being that there are some very powerful tech tools like yours that enable this visibility. You know, I think we've seen some of the uh, the crypto firms really kind of be proactive about following the money, uh, identifying sanctioned addresses, that type of thing. So I, I don't know if that reflects what you've seen in the space, but that seems to be what, what we've heard, at least from some of our members. Yeah, and what we what we've seen is that exchanges are now able to sort of really pay a lot more attention to you know when when things are designated. It's it's certainly increased the degree with which they can um, you know, understand and and start to build out you know what are the controls in place that they need to really have in in place so that they can detect this type of money movement. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine it's a bit of a whack-a-mole with sanctioning things like wallet addresses, right? Because this is not something that's necessarily uh, difficult to obtain. Uh, you could you could uh, use a new wallet. Could you could open up a, a new uh, anonymous email, create a new anonymous wallet, that type of thing, pretty quickly and rapidly. So uh, the the idea of sanctioning a wallet address seems to have some application, but it also seems to be pretty ripe for evasion by bad actors. Is that uh, would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, I think in general, what, what's interesting about the cryptocurrency industry is that the same principles certainly apply and regulators have been able to adapt the, the same type of principles to the cryptocurrency industry. It's sometimes though the analogy doesn't perfectly line up to traditional banking. And this is where, you know, because someone has say, listed a, a cryptocurrency address as part of a specially designated national, you don't you don't necessarily block the, all the funds going to and from that account, but it does definitely help build a better picture. And it's the way in which the industry really identify these participants. So, you know, what we found is that when when OFAC does designate someone, an individual or add cryptocurrency addresses to a particular designation that goes into our software in 24 hours are customers who may be exposed to the source of those funds or destination of those funds receives an alert in our kyt product instantly from that and then they are able even if they don't have a direct connection with that particular address that's listed on there they're definitely looking for the connection and you know through the transparency of of the blockchain we've definitely seen um, a real increase in you know the amount of intelligence that can be provided and and sometimes also the funds that can be seized at these exchanges you know, not specifically at the address that's sanctioned but maybe the addresses that, that receive money from those sanctioned addresses and um, you know, that's been very helpful in preventing further money from being um, given to, to organizations like Lazarus. 
Great. Yeah. So not a, not a, not a perfect fit, but there's still a lot that can be done to, uh, to kind of cordon off and identify these bad actors. Uh, one of the points mentioned in the, in the enforcement, uh, or the, the designation rather, um, by U.S. Treasury of these, these two nationals was that there was a role of underregulated or unregulated exchanges and peer to peer crypto platforms. Uh, and in general, they've been a factor in uh, illicit funds moving through crypto for, for a long time now, these these unregulated uh, uh, exit points for crypto, right? Uh, you know, so we've talked about crypto firms that have uh, really made strides in compliance of in recent years, but it seems like there's still a subset of exchanges that lack really even basic AML programs. Um, and if that's if that's the case, where are there still these sort of hotspots of unregulated crypto exchanges and peer-to-peer platforms? Yeah, so I think that this is this is definitely an issue that the industry is grappling with. And by virtue of the fact that cryptocurrency is global, this is a, an easy way for people to to build businesses in you know almost anywhere in the world. So I think that these, you know, particularly with FADF coming out with the um, guidance and, and recommendations over the last year has definitely helped build some cohesion in the international uh, regulatory sphere. But there are still platforms that um, offer, you know, potentially only cryptocurrency to cryptocurrency transactions that require really no KYC. And there are even exchanges that, that don't necessarily have, you know, the best controls in place to to manage the um, to manage you know, the identification of their customers and AML procedures, and and actually they can exist in some different geographies around the world, and this this has been you know, a troubling thing for the industry. Um, and the good sort of side of this though is that in some of these jurisdictions, in places like Hong Kong or BWI or or some or, or maybe Malta, you know there can be you know, there has been sort of a step up in the regulatory regime in these places, and and those those businesses you know, are now going through regulatory examinations and making sure that those controls are, are really effective. Yeah, and I, you know, there, as you said, there's still I think much more to come there. You know, the FATF's uh, uh, regulatory guidance uh, just came out over the summer, and it's supposed to be implemented, I believe, if I, if I have this correct, uh, by by June of this year. By at least that's the recommendation by country. So I think you know we're likely to see greater regulatory activity, although. You know, given the the current pandemic moment, uh, a lot of that a lot of that might be uh, kind of on the back burner for for at least the next couple of months. Uh, you know, so I mean, just kind of one one final closing thought. We've talked about the North Korea quite a bit. We've talked about the actions of the the Lazarus Group, uh, and this is hardly you know the the last we're likely to hear from them. Um, there was an estimate I saw from a UN panel back in uh, 2019 that that. Attributed about 500 million in funds stolen from exchanges by 
the Democrat, the, the DPRK. Uh, so this is clearly a big business for them. This is clearly a big part of how they raise funds uh, amid tough sanctions. And looking ahead, it's likely to stay a threat for the foreseeable future. So, you know, kind of kind of thinking big picture here now, if I'm a financial institution, crypto or otherwise, yeah, how, how do I how am I protecting myself? What am I thinking about in a world where threats come from these these very advanced sources like rogue nation states? Yeah, so I, I think I think about this in, in two parts. One is one is the de- the defensive cyber side, and one is the actual compliance angle. So, you know, on the cyber side, the techniques that are being used by groups like Lazarus, who are determined to you know cause havoc and and extort institutions, yeah, that's where there's necessary investment in all sorts of threat detection from phishing emails and other types of education of staff that that need to be done in order to protect institutions and in these types of times where organizations might be shifting the way they work due to you know the outbreak of the pandemic it's important that the security measures that are put in place by institutions doesn't lapse during this time to to adapt to the new mode of working and so I think that that's, that's definitely something that we um, we think that businesses should continue to invest in and, and protect themselves. But essentially, the tactics that Lazarus employ are, are pretty similar to other threat actors, and so uh, there's not there's not necessarily anything specific to be done in combating this threat. Um, the on the compliance side, however, there is really you know, a need to do a few things. One is what I've described is it's important to understand the actual you know, thefts themselves and understand you know, you know, what are the amounts of money that are involved and, and get alerted about the different the different cases that, that are coming out. And really, it's a question of understanding some of the typologies of the methods that they are using to launder the funds through different services. And that is essential to understand you know, what should financial institutions be looking for when you know, they're looking at their traditional payments coming from and going to cryptocurrency exchanges in order to understand you know, what, what could be connected to you know, an actor like Lazarus. As I said, you know, most of the activity that you'll see from the cryptocurrency industry is, is totally legitimate. But you know, how can financial institutions and cryptocurrency businesses work together really effectively to look at some of these typologies and say, through understanding the dollar values that are are being transacted and the velocity of those payments, you know, what is what can be connected and attributed to Lazarus? And one final thought is that you know, I think you you sort of alluded to it is that you know, the sanctions piece doesn't sort of neatly fit onto the traditional banking model. You know, what I think you see from the most recent OFAC actions is that you know, and civil forfeiture is that there really is. You know, success being had you know, through the use of chain analysis, analyzing the flow of funds from the cryptocurrency hack all the way through, and you know, seizures being put in place to actually seize at the exchanges themselves, or even at the you know, financial institution one step down the line, you know, some of these funds and preventing it from getting into the hands of uh, people at DPRK. 
Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, great answer and, and a lot to kind of digest there. I mean, it's it's uh, it's in one hand, it's it's pretty astonishing to see the level of sophistication and the the threat that a lot of institutions are uh, up against. But as you say, you know, there's tremendous amount of creativity and advancement taking place on the other side uh, through the chain analysis and and many other firms that are out there. So. Uh, excited to see what we can do uh, due, to, due to combat these threats, too. So, well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. I'm sure we could keep talking about this for, uh, for another hour, but uh, I'm sure also that this topic will continue to be relevant in the weeks, months, and years ahead. So, I uh, look forward to continuing the conversation sometime in the future, Jonathan, and thanks again for the time and insights. Thanks, Brian. Pleasure to speak to you.